nurses all gathered round And they gazed in wide wonder At the joy they had found The head nurse spoke up Said leave this one alone She could tell right away That I was bad to the bone Bad to the bone Bad to the bone Bad to the bone Bad Welcome back to New Persuasive Words. I'm Scott Jones. And I'm Bill Bohr. And Bill, today is Saturday. Happy Saturday it's to you. It's Saturday Day Live, so it's the Friday Night Lights. Big stuff happening here in Langhorn. Yeah, there's the Rotary Club uh, Pet Fair. Pet and Family Fair. Pet and Family Fair. It's pretty awesome. Yeah, I, I didn't go to it, but your wife said there's somebody walking around with a skunk saying how really skunks make great... There is. And they, and they were talking about how basically if you make noise... That your dog won't get sprayed. She was actually giving like tips that's, to like. That's so she, said, she said, "If no. you do something, if you do something before you see the skunk or something, that they'll be afraid." If you shoot it at a hundred feet, yeah. That, I, she had some. She had some. They still spray when you shoot them. By the she way, she had some um, oh, tip for avoiding getting. I don't know. Yeah, don't walk around carrying them. Yeah, they, if, uh, there's or, like five skunks out here um, on the end of the block, like. Yeah, no, they're they're, they're they're dig they dig these they're like, rodents. Yeah, yeah. they dig in and uh, yeah, it'd be interesting in a very horrible way if your dogs and the skunks ever cross paths. Yeah, I don't I don't know what happened. <laughs> I had my best friend in high school. They lived up in the in the hills in the in the woods, and their dog got sprayed by a skunk. And they washed, they washed, they did everything. Tomato juice. Uh, they did everything. It was awful. So the dog, it was, you know, the dog would come in now, big collie. So it's got all this hair. So there was like cans of right guard deodorant all over the house. And if the dog came and sat beside you, it was so bad. You, you just sprayed. sprayed it. But then you have right guard and skunk smell. Uh, so that's unpleasant. So keep your dogs away from skunks. That's, that's words the to moral of the. Yeah, words they to have live. a nice petting thing too. They had, and we got hot dogs. We always go and get hot dogs over there because they have nice little hot dogs. Very nice. So if you're yeah. in Langhorn area, stop by and support. Stop by. It's great. Although it's. Sports Rotary. I was worried you weren't going to find a place to park because it was pretty. Yeah, it was a little. I had to circle around. Your street is. Your street is, it's a, there's a police action going on. Your street shut down. Right this now. is ground zero for, yeah. for the. Yep. So we, I posted something from a, it's a quote from a book, which I bought for three ninety nine. I haven't read yet, but it's a quote from, where is it? Uh, it said, it's a quote from Stephen Hines, the Christian life cross or glory, which came out in 2015. And I asked people if we should talk about this. And they said we should. So, and we see this as part of a series that we're doing. Yes, this is yeah, right. So basically, we is leading up to the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. We are going to do a series called Theology and Outline, and so Reformation reconsidered. Reformation reconsidered. So and so R squared. Uh, (laughs) So what we're going to do is we're going to look at we're going to be reading Robert Jensen's brief. Uh, the outline of theology and systematics one and two. Got, no, no, the oh, short, the brief one, short, the, short, the brief one, okay. the brief one, and yeah. comparing it with Brian Garish's brief dogmatics and outline because they're both short and they're both Reformation tradition people who are also ecumenically minded and who have written short outlines of systematic dogmatic theology. Which I feel like in short treatises like that, short treatments, you find out like what's central. Right, and they also do an excellent job at it. Yeah, so yeah. they're and they're both very different. I mean, it, we were just talking before before we we started streaming or recording that that for two people that come out of a similar 
orbit in the tradition. I mean, they're both, mm-hmm. you know, Protestants, one's Presbyterian, one's Lutheran. They, their, their theologies are very different. I mean, they're, they're, yeah. they're, they're crafted differently. They kind of, the, the beginning is very different the way they sort of chart things out. So I think, yeah, I think, and they're both very good and careful theologians. It, it's kind of, and this will be a theme. It's, it's part of the weakness of any kind of reductionist view of what is the essence of the Christian faith. And we'll be talking about Luther's, Calvin. We'll also touch on, I think, Wesley's attempt to correct that I think falls short. And then the Anabaptist stream, which sometimes is all over the place on this issue. But that, you know, that they, in, in some ways, it's it's really hard to, to have a, uh, a theory of what you want to call it, initiation into the Christian faith, justification, whatever that, what does it mean for us to be saved, that, you know, the Protestant systems, or, you know, I don't know if you call Wesley a system, but the Protestant attempts to to kind of reform and reclaim a biblical faith, uh, certainly each have some wonderful strengths to them, but in and of each of them in and of themselves has some fairly glaring weaknesses as well. It's really interesting too. Garish actually wrote an essay about Alexander Schweitzer, I think, who was a 19th century, you know, Protestant sort of scholastic thinker or post-scholastic thinker. And apparently like when you would write these sort of Lutheran or Reformed systematics, it really was like there was a systematic principle that drove the whole thing. And that was, they were pretty explicit about that. Right. And for the Lutherans, it was justification by faith. And he actually said, Schweitzer said that for the Reformed, he thought the essence was the difference between the creator and the creature, which is why the Christologies are so, you know, where this sort of, where the Reformed are always looking at the Lutheran Christology and thinking that's mixing the natures and stuff like that because of, so anyway. But we digress. So, yeah, we'll do I mean, we probably won't do like, we're not going to necessarily do them consecutively, but we'll do, we we might do like every other one or, and plus we've got to read the thing. So that's going to take us a little bit of time, but they're short, which is good. Yeah. So, but, but our topic for today is, so the title of this post from, on somebody's site, I forget, who is this? Uh, Let me see who it is, just so I can credit them. This is anticlimactic when I do things like this. (laughs) This is so slow. Why is their page so slow? We we actually might edit this out. Yeah. yeah. Well, whatever. Anyway, I'll credit them in the show notes or something. But this this is a post called Augustinian Influence Sanctification versus Lutheran Sanctification. And again, this blog post is quoting a this book which is mentioned from a guy who lives in Concordia. Oh, by the way, it's Pastor Matt Richard. So, Matt, thank you for posting this. Uh, whether right. or not we agree with it or or whatever we'll do with it. It made a state. Yeah. It, it's it was very provocative so basically he's he's quoting this missouri synod guy and he basically says that the guy he's quoting stephen hines says through much of western christian thought from post-apostolic times to luther uh there was this sort of quest for personal holiness he thinks it's true for saint augustine who even though he championed salvation by grace apart from works understood the grace of god primarily as a divine power that progressively transformed the sinners the sinner in other words god requires a holy and righteous life and by grace he continually produces what he demands and sort of this infusion of of righteousness into the life of the believer. And he says that this moral model of grace infused dominated the church for the next 12 years. And then he sees Luther as a different kind of as, as rediscovering a truth of the gospel that has basically a different conception of the Christian life. And so he thinks that that basically the Lutheran I mean, how it's to summarize it. Basically, it's sort of your baptism continually, right? In your baptism, you die and rise with Christ. And so he thinks that the Lutheran view is not so much a 
gradual healing or something like that, but actually is a sort of revisiting that truth again. I mean, I've heard George Hunzinger said something like, you know, the Christian, there's parts of the Christian life that are once for all, and then they're again and again. So you're, so you're justified once or baptized once, and yet you, you, Put on your baptism again, or you know, improving, or the or the the reformed divine should say improving on your baptism, right? right? Like, mm-hmm. so this this idea that it's not so much a a it's not improving on your baptism, no, right? Um, uh, so basically, he the, he says that for Luther's way, we make progress in Christian life by starting over again by God's baptismal work. We are always beginning anew, dying to sin, and being made alive by a saving word, dying to live in baptism signature. Is is baptism's signature on the whole character of Christian life. God slays and makes alive again. He does not stop at the baptismal font, but his baptismal covenant is renewed in us continually through the ministry of law and gospel. Dying to sin by the law and rising again by the gospel constitutes the present tense of baptism for all God's children. These words kill and make alive, rendering us sinners and saints at the same time. So that's his basic, he thinks that, that there's this kind of real difference in a kind of Lutheran understanding of right. what the Christian life is all about. And going back to Luther himself, versus what he thinks is this dominant Augustinian kind of model. Right. <clears throat> well, um, again, we're not Luther scholars, but that would be Luther in its extreme. Yes. That, that would be what we come to know as Lutheranism. At some levels, it reminds me of growing up at evangelical churches. And so, you know, they'd have testimony, you know, what has the Lord done for you? And a lot of people would stand up and say, the Lord saved me 20 years ago, okay? And then, you know, maybe the next, you know, six months, the Lord saved me 20 years ago in six months. In other words, the only testimony they ever had was the Lord saved me at a certain time and place, not even 30 AD. It was the Lord, they would have a year that the Lord saved them. In other words, the only thing they had to say about God doing, what God doing in their life was what they saw as the initiation into their Christian life, which on one level, okay, from a theological perspective, you know, the fact is that, you know, we should never glory you know, anything apart from the cross. Uh, you know, the idea that we can always cling to this uh, publican's prayer, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Uh, there's something about that that's all good and true. And particularly if if we an understanding that we have been forgiven much, we love much. But I think there's also incredible danger in that perspective that keeps you you never get you never get beyond first base. You always are at the very beginning of the Christian life. There is I, I know you can go into that deeper, but I think the practical implication of that uh is that you end up not having a doctrine of any kind of Christian life. Yeah, it certainly could it certainly could Well I think it has. I mean it's yeah. not not certainly could. I think it I think you see it in in the piety of many, many people who kind of emphasize the initiation into the faith and that that's all that matters, whether you are whether you stand on your baptism or when you got born again, that they're really, you know, I'm born again, so therefore I can think whatever I want to politically, I can do whatever I want to, I don't have to change my prejudices, I can uh, arrest people because they look Hispanic, and uh, and regardless of what the judge says. <laughs> so what you are, you are pointing to the so-called antinomian problem. Yes, I would say the antinomian problem. Yes, I would. That's what I would. um, And not even the antinomian, but the fact is that that's all there is. The Christian life is basically, I'm going to go to heaven. God save me. I'm just, uh, I'm just waiting. (laughs) You know, I think the people that, okay, let's take, let me speak for Stephen Hine, which I I do not know. And I have, again, I've purchased his Kindle book for $3.99. Somewhere he's out there shaking right now. Exactly. That you're defending him. 
I want to take a brief moment to ask you a quick question. Do you like this podcast? Do you enjoy it? Do you look forward to listening to it while you do a morning, afternoon, evening routine, or while you're exercising, or while you're caught frustrated in traffic? Do you tune into it because of the conversations you find? Gracious conversations characterized by a particular combination of wit, empathy, reflection, and human understanding. If the answer to the aforementioned questions is yes, or even just a solid maybe, would you do something for me? Would you consider becoming a Patreon sponsor of the podcast for just five bucks a month or more? It's for a good cause. You can help this podcast and one of the many others I do keep going and you can help launch several other podcast projects I've got in the works. Being a Patreon sponsor is really just you being a patron of an art form you enjoy and are passionate about. So I invite you to be a patron through Patreon of this, which I think is an art form you're enjoying and will continue to enjoy. Again, any contribution is welcome, but for five bucks a month, you will get a shout out on the thank you roll call, which begins right now. Thank you, David and Winona Babico, Peter Stegenwald, Samantha Blythe, Sari Graham, Jordan and Danny Morseberger, Josh Redder, Ellis Brazil, and David Zoll. If you want to join these patrons through Patreon, just go to patreon.com forward slash Scott Kent Jones. Thanks again for listening, and now back to the show. But, I mean, they would, and I, I, you know, I've heard this defense from many folks that, that, to the antinomian charge that actually you never really got it. Like, like it's sort of like you, you never really experienced the love of God and divine grace because of your indifference and callousness to it. It's sort of like the John Valjean, Les Miserables thing. Like when you really are given the, a kind of forgiveness that is scandalous and you're really the object of true unconditional love, it changes, you know, that, 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 that sort of antinomian cavalierness is indicative of someone that's not really been a recipient of right. healing or forgiveness. Which is always the excuse, well, I, that person never was really saved in the first place or whatever. Yeah. yeah. Which just gives you a nice way to back out of it. There's this great line in that thing we read by Brian Garrish. We read a few pages just to back for background on this. He says that, what does he say that these, the notions that, you know, grace is, it's just Augustinian sort of Calvinist, Lutheran sort of understanding of, you know, the bondage of the will and the great, this grace that it can only be a gift and creates faith. He says, you know, the arguments for it are a priori. That <laughs> 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 they're just for the fact, they're just asserted. Um, and he's not saying that disparagingly. I mean, he's just said, it, 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 like, he just said, like, he's just making a, an observation. So I right. like that. Yeah. I thought. So, yeah, I mean, I think that, that, I mean, I, the, certainly, uh, I guess defenders of Luther would say here on this point would say that there is a, 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 a version of the Christian life, but it is, it's, well, it's I think certain, it's in Luther. I don't think Luther is as Lutheran as yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think actually Lutheran has, I think there are a lot of evidence for a, a really engaged uh, doctrine of the Christian life. I, 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 uh, I, I'm not sure he's even Luther's consistent with all the extreme ideas that you're both sinner and saint at the same time, saved and sinner at the same time. I think there's aspects of Luther that aren't as extreme as that rhetoric in some of his doctrines of Christian life. But that's that's, um, but that's only what he wrote in 1518, not <laughs> 15, 1517. Yeah, it's interesting because we I sent you something before. Yeah, as you were on the ride over. We, we, we by the way, every we we've 
had this idea. We've been thinking about this podcast for two days. Yes. Which is a record for us. Right. I mean, two days in a row. Right. We didn't even sleep. We just no, kept we didn't. So Brian Garish in his section on on justification in his little systematic series says that, that the ideal Lutheran lives in the liberating joy of unconditional forgiveness and is ever watchful for the least trace of a resurgent works righteousness, although eagerness for neighborly good works is not thereby diminished but inspired. The ideal Calvinist is a dutiful son or daughter pledged to willing obedience and always on guard against a complacent faith without works. Although it is not filial, filial obedience, but fatherly indulgence alone that secures their confidence in God. Because even saints are sinners, in both ideals, the saint is viewed through what we may call the dialectic of healing and forgiveness. But in each ideal, there is a distinctive emphasis. There will always be such modifications in the profile of a saint. They are not exclusive. They need one another to describe the fullness of the Christian life. Right. Well, and part of that, too, is the distinction is that uh, Calvin has uh, makes a move, that Luther does, and where Calvin does develop a separate doctrine of sanctification. And you might say that that's an innovation from Augustine as well. In terms of an Augustine, justification and sanctification are all kind of part of the same process. But but And that's part of also Calvin's view of the Spirit, work of the Spirit, things like that. But that there's a sense of, there's really is a separate, you know, there's a separate kind of thing called sanctification from justification. Yeah, and he actually treats sanctification first in the Institutes, before justification, which people thought was, I mean, some people found controversial, and some of that is probably he's worrying about antinomian criticisms right. he's, and things he's like trying, that. Trying, yeah, he, yeah, yeah. Yeah, by the way, it's funny. I'd ever tell you, Ed Dowie, who was uh, the great Calvin scholar of blessed memory at, uh, at uh, Princeton was there, was talking, reflecting on Calvin. He says, it's probably in God's providence that, that uh, Luther came before Calvin because if it had been the other way around. Calvin probably would have been Pope and had Luther put to death. <laughs> <laughs> could be. That could be. I mean, that, 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 that could be. Yeah. yeah. So I think that that, I mean, it's interesting because uh, that Garish there is, is very conscious about seeing these things, as, seeing both this sort of Lutheran and Calvin, Calvinistic ideal as describing something that's at the heart of the Christian tradition from the biblical witness on and sort of, you know, both on to an emphasis and sees them as complementary. So. And actually necessary. To yeah. Be con- necessary to be in complement and tension with each other. Doesn't he say that? Yeah. Yeah. And he also says that, um, in the paragraph for that, it's hardly too much to say that the heart of the Reformation gospel was conveyed in the conception of faith as intuitus Christi, undivided attention to the Christ who is presented in the Word. In this faith, Luther and Calvin discovered the source of the love for God and neighbor in which sanctification essentially consists. It sets the believer free from anxiety toward God and free for attention to others. Yeah. And this is, Luther says this right in the, in the, freedom of a Christian. Like it's sort of the Christian is Lord of all and then can be servant of all. Right. So it, so if if the grace of God takes, frees the sinner from, you know, the, the, the curvis, you know, the curvature inward. Right. That you're, you're Lord of all because Christ has set you free from the need for, you know, approval, validation by your own works and reputation. So that then frees you, he thinks, to be servant of all. Right. Because you you have the liberty that can then be displayed and offered in love to yeah. neighbor. I do think one of his one of the interesting discussion was really go back and look at you know Paul's use of justification and and that um, you know Paul's not consistent. I mean, not consistent, but it's a broad term for for the apostle Paul. I, a part of it is you know the idea is justification by faith really a central 
a central way of thinking about uh, the gospel. Um, is it is it the center of Paul, or is it the biblical center? That's maybe one question. The other question is: Is it still uh, even for those of us in the Reformed tradition? Is it still really the most helpful and working synopsis or rule of faith for um, for us in the twenty first century? Uh, and I think. The answer, uh, I agree with him. The answer is probably no on both those counts, that it doesn't capture enough of what Paul is saying, or if, more than Paul. I mean, obviously, the gospel is more than the Apostle Paul. But it, it may, the idea of reconciliation or, or you know, Calvin's idea of adoption, reconciliation, may be actually not only more more close to the, to the, council, the full council of the New Testament, but they may actually be more helpful concepts in the 21st century, better ways to talk about the gospel. Well, Gareth certainly— thinks that yeah that's what i meant and yeah. and bart does too i mean bart of course volume four is the doctrine of reconciliation right. and in that is his christology his understanding of sin his doctrine of justification and sanctification and vocation you know all of those things and the treatments right of faith hope and love are all each in, in one in, in, you know unpacked in separate part volumes yeah it feels to me sometimes that luther's idea of justification of faith is this wonderful box. It's a wonderful package. It's a wonderful, whatever you want to call it, that was a really important corrective to the late medieval Roman Catholic Church, both from a theological, even more from a spiritual existential. But that try to pack everything, you know, try to pack your whole wardrobe, try to put in that box. It, it doesn't, it's, it's, not, it's not a box or not maybe, or I'm mixing my metaphors here, but contrary to even, you know, the Augsburg Confession of Faith, it may not be the best set of lenses to look at the whole gospel through. Well, the other thing, too, that I think is really interesting in Garish is that he basically thinks that that the the kind of way to talk about faith today is something more along the lines of uh, reconciliation sort of frees you from the sense of estrangement in the world. Mm-hmm. Like, and this is, you know, he, that Garish thinks that, and he's working off Tillich here. I mean, Tillich thinks that, that the, the sort of like the, the guilt induced sort of sensitive conscious anxiety that, that we see in the middle ages that gives birth to the reformation right. in part gives way in the modern period to the anxiety driven by rootlessness like emptiness mm-hmm. nihilism and you know we've talked about this recently i think that that basically this is the this is the uh the book uh, all things shining which is a fabulous book by by kelly and dreyfus dreyfus just died this year that uh, both Heidegger scholars, but it's the subtitles reading the classics in a secular age, and they really think that this is a, a challenge when you take when when we're living in a mo- late modern culture where there's no one controlling story right. that most people in pre-modern times are born into a context where the role you know what's me- the meaning of life, virtues, gender roles, all you know like what you know why you do what you do and it, these things are all sort of there's myths and great epic narratives that like shape this and so in in modernity you kind of in late modernity there is no one center story and we kind of we all have to kind of make sense of it ourselves and garish is thinking that in in the midst of that the message uh, the liberating message of the gospel looks a little less now he says there are all these anxieties always connected to all human lives but but the the one that comes to the forefront is this sense of estrangement and almost like exile in in modern life well i'm I'm reminded of that flannery o'connor short story i think it's called the river where the little boy who's neglected um 
you know, neglected boy of these uh, one uh, mother has a drinking problem and the kid, the uh, white family doesn't really care about their son. So the housekeeper comes by and picks up the little boy to take him to a river revival. And the minister, you know, grabs a hold of the boy because you know, the, the housekeeper says, this this boy needs, say, he needs something. And so the preacher grabs the boy and just swings him into the water and baptizes him and then pulls him up. The kid's spitting out water. And the preacher says, now you belong. <laughs> now you belong. You didn't belong. You weren't anybody, but now you belong. You are somebody. And I think I think Flannery O'Connor uh, really anticipates nails where we're at. And I think that's true. I think one of the great uh, great promises of, of faith is that you know you're 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 brought. You know, sometimes you know I was talking to someone the other day who felt guilty about stuff they didn't even know what they felt guilty about. And I think one of the things is you know you come home, you're forgiven, even if things you don't even need to be forgiven of, and you um, you belong. You belong here. By the way, there's Mark Oppenheimer w- wants to know that why you why Bill is standing so still relative to Scott's kinetic mojo. So I guess I have kinetic mojo. It is it's the polarity that we are. Exactly. In other exactly. words, the whole universe could blow up if I start moving. It it could. Don't cross the streams. Yeah, because and that yeah, I'll just quote Garisher because I found the reference. He said, you know that. The traditional Protestant answer, he says, you know, what, to what then shall we conclude is the gospel addressed? The traditional Protestant answer has always been that the Christian proclamation speaks to human sin and guilt so that where guilt is not present, it must be induced. The bad news of the law must precede the good news of the gospel. And he talks about forensic language of justification and, and so forth and so forth. But he says that a message of guilt and pardon suited the Reformation struggle with a terrified conscience. And I do not doubt that it will always have its place in the gospel of the glory and grace of God. But in all I have said about elemental faith, estrangement, and the work of Christ, I have opened the possibility of identifying another point of contact that lies deeper and may come to expression in more ways than one. The loss of confidence in a reliable environment, a coherent world order in which it makes sense to ask for the meaning of our existence, our place in the whole. I have argued that this confidence has the logical status of an inevitable belief, not open to proof, but tacitly presupposed by our theology, our science, and quite simply our daily existence as human beings. In this lies its rational justification. So that's where he thinks that, that this, you know, that, that the Gospels are addressed precisely to the predicament of elemental faith under siege. Yeah, you know, I also think too. I mean, I, this was years when I when I worked with urban kids, and you talk, you get to the point of talking about human need. Never had to convince them. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> never had to convince urban kids. Things are broken. You might be broken. Yeah, they're going. Yeah. So yeah, tell me something I don't know. When I worked with upper middle class and rich kids, well, wait a minute, I'm I'm fine. You know, I'm I'm good. I've been you know I've I've been told how wonderful I was ever since you know I I could hear, and yet. Uh, Sometimes periodically when when you come up to those situations, well, how's that working? What are you what is what really matters? And it creates a myth of control, it creates a myth that somehow the world is here to serve me and affirm me. And when that breaks down, okay, when a classmate dies, when they don't get into the school they wanted to get into, uh, when they get cut from the team or lose their job, then then sometimes there's little cheeks, the things that gave them a myth of belonging, a myth of control in their universe. I found with those kind of kids and then <laughs> the adult versions of those kids, that's the point to say, you know what, the world that you created for yourself, the illusion of what you lived in isn't quite working. So is there an opportunity for something is there an opportunity for something bigger and deeper? I, you know, I do think uh, just uh, the idea, the the, the uh, rubric where telling everybody how 
guilty and how sinful they are. That doesn't work for everybody. And I don't think that's not the only approach. Certainly wasn't Jesus' approach with the rich young ruler, right? He didn't say, he didn't say, well, no, yes, you really are a dirty, rotten sinner, you know. He said, okay, you just lack one thing. Yeah. And then that opened up, uh, you know, I think often people see the rich young ruler walking away as a failure. If you don't remember the story, the rich young ruler comes and says, I've kept all the commandments. I want to follow you. And Jesus says, one thing you lack, go and sell everything you have. And it says he walked away uh, sadly because he had much. But I think he walked, he came to Jesus thinking, hey, I'm okay. My life is good. This is kind of just a little more quest. I just need, you know, maybe I'll go to the right seminary, seminar, read the right book. If I get, you know, maybe like a little, you know, I get a coach. Jesus is like my coach. And, Matt uh, Johnson, Matt Johnson, <laughs> life coach, Jesus. Jesus is my life coach here. But then Jesus blows up his whole system. Well, isn't, I mean, when a Lutheran say what Jesus does is actually the first use of the law. Like this fact that like there's no, the fact that he really hadn't felt the first use of the law in, in that he thought, he thought, "Hey, I, I've measured up. Like I kind of, and, and so, in some sense, he needs to feel. I guess he ne- he needs the sense that no, you, you, you do lack in the one thing you lack everything. You know, well, right. But that actually, it's it's well. And again, I can understand that read of it, but I think also he walks away. I mean, he walks away convicted, but he walks away troubled because suddenly my world that I thought, and even the way I approach my faith, this guy who I think might be the real deal, has told me." That I'm lacking, and I think um, I think a lot of us come to faith, or at least begin to think about spiritual issues, when we, one way or the other, either by life or by tragedy or by failure or just by the aha moment, there's something significantly lacking in my life. Yeah, it's interesting too that as we're thinking about, we haven't really. I guess we have touched on the Luther Augustine thing. I mean, we started there, but I guess we're kind of moving other places. But Rob Bell on his podcast was saying that he was at a party in Hollywood and was talking to like... Which is often how you and I spend our Exactly. Weekends. Oftentimes. <laughs> often, yeah. And he at this party, he's talking to basically this most sought after sort of transcendental meditation teacher you know, in, in the area. And he, he said, what is it like you see all sorts of people, right? All kinds of things. What is it they come... She's like, without exception, almost always, there's a sense that they're not enough. Yeah. And then I, I, I do wonder if that's part of the, as Garish is talking about, how the gospel speaks into the condition of the moment. Like, I wonder if, if that most people, their, their own sort of, sort of alienation takes less the form of Luther's troubled conscience, like with a, with a really cute moral and spiritual sensitivity, and more to this, I don't measure up in a consumer culture. Right. I, I, I'm not enough, you know, and right. I, I'm trying to show that I'm the, I'm the dream parent, I'm, that I've got my right. good suburban lifestyle or this and, and that, you know, I'm woke, I'm enlightened, I'm, uh, you know, that, uh, you know, that I'm the respectable member of late modern society. I wonder that if that is where, in some sense, the, the heart cry is existentially for people yeah. today. Yeah, and I, I think there's a lot to that. I also, you know, one of the things that. And, and also basically our whole economy. Yeah. Is built on that feeling being sustained. <laughs> That's right. It's a postmodern economy. We don't make anything. Yeah. Yeah. I, I do think perhaps even the Luther versed Augustinian view of justification or the Christian life and the Christian life may be a false, a false contrast because Lutheran is Augustinian, but only maybe partially Augustinian. And I think that's, there's, there's a, if you would, there's a broader Augustinian way. To look at it. Matter of fact, that's one of the points that uh, I forget who made that point, but Calvin, Wesley, 
everybody in West Luther, they're all Augustinians. Yeah, and it's interesting, too, that we, and we can talk more about this in forthcoming podcasts, but, I mean, Garish has a lot of interesting Luther references. He does. Uh, that where, where Luther is sounds a lot like Augustine at certain points. He does. He sounds a little bit like Calvin at certain points. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> With a Be- little Luther. Because he's a biblical, he was a biblical Christian. I, I, and, and also, yeah. you know, Bart says that there's irregular dogmatics and regular dogmatics, and he thinks that that like Athanasius on the Incarnation, that's irregular dogmatics. Like it's a it's a treatise targeted at an, an occasional situation. He th- thinks though that irregular dogmatics are always the foundation for regular dogmatics. So someone like Calvin, who is doing something institutes like what Bart would say is more regular dogmatics, where he's sitting down thinking, okay, I'm going to think through the Christian thing in a way that tries to be somewhat comprehensive and order ordering the the doctrines and ideas in a way that that unfolds the whole you know shape of the thing as opposed to luther never did regular dogmatics i mean he's always he's always he's always doing treatises biblical commentaries you know essay like disputations things like that but there's never like you can't go to like luther's dogmatic here's where luther laid out four volumes you know and and it was his sort of start to finish understanding of the thing it's good to to be reminded that none of the biblical writers did that either right exactly you know i i think to me, but kind of maybe winding this conversation down and setting the table for future ones. Um, one of the things that really troubles me about um, millions of people who believe that their standing in, in the presence of the Almighty is based on grace alone through the sacrificial life of Christ and who call themselves after Christ. And what I'm troubled about is the seem, seemingly lack of any kind of humility or, or self-reflection about what might be the implication of living in the love of God and grace, particularly how it's playing out in the public square right now. And it's not that it's, it's not a problem for me that Christians are hypocrites, because we all are hypocrites. The problem is that we don't seem to recognize or admit that. In other words, we talk with great certainty about minor things, and we seem to um, we seem to have forgotten the idea of of he who has been forgiven much will will love much, and that the life under the grace of God in Christ is to be lived as to love as Christ loved the new mandate, which is you know inspired, sustained by grace alone. But I I, I it seems to me I can't help but wonder. If there's something rotten at the core, if there's if part of the reason that there's this huge disconnect might be that there's something inherently wrong with the way we understand that initiation into grace. Well, I actually think, too, and we've talked about this several times, but I I think for a lot of Christians in America and, and, and here I'm thinking, oh, this, there'd be all kinds that would the critique would apply differently. But but I'm thinking more of traditional or conservative mm-hmm. Protestant people, even, the, evangelical yeah, the, Protestants, the people who taught me faith in the Bible. Yeah, I think that what we've said before, like I think there's a, sometimes a theology about the cross, but not a theology yes. of the cross. Yeah. And so it kind of, it, which in Luther's parlance, would turns into like a different kind of theology of glory. So there's this sort of all this talk about penal substitution and this and that and and, and this system and how you're not and, you know, and so it's like, but it, it's the, the theologian of the cross thing is heartbroken, is undone, is sort of you know is is. So the fact that like that it can sound like that, like usually give it betrays the theology of glory. Yeah, I don't think you'd ever would hear uh, Martin Luther singing "Making Germany Great Again." <laughs> that tune is terrible. Too, so. Thank you, everybody, have and stay tuned. Have a good Saturday, Saturday and stay tuned for forthcoming episodes of 
theology and outline. Reformation and, reconsidered, theology and outline. And be safe, those of you in South Texas. Yes, absolutely. God bless. Stay, keeping up when they